1. The New York Times Current History A Monthly Magazine The European War, Volume II April, 1915 September, 1915 General Sir John French's Own Story The Costly Victory of New Chapel London, April 14th, Field Marshal Sir John French, Commander of the British Expeditionary Forces on the Continent, reports the British losses in the three days fighting at New Chapel last month, as follows, killed, 190 officers. 2.337 men, wounded, 359 officers, 8.174 other ranks, missing, 23 officers, 1.728 men, total casualties, 12.811, the report continues, the enemy left several thousand dead on the field, and we have positive information that upward of 12.000 wounded were removed by trains, 30 officers and 1.657 of other ranks were captured. The British commander's dispatch concerning the battle is long, and says, among other things, considerable delay occurred after the capture of New Chapel, and the infantry was greatly disorganized. I am of the opinion that this delay would not have occurred had the clearly expressed order of the general officer commanding the First Army been more carefully observed. Field Marshal Sir John French's report, which covers the battles of New Chapel and St. Eloy under date of April 5th was published in the official Gazette today. The Commander-in-Chief writes, The event of chief interest and importance which has taken place is the victory achieved over the enemy in the Battle of Neuve Chapel, which was fought on March 10, 11, and 12. The main attack was delivered by the troops of the First Army under command of General Sir Douglas Haig, supported by a large force of heavy artillery, a division of cavalry, and some infantry of the General Reserve. Secondary and holding attacks and demonstrations were made along the front of the Second Army, under direction of its commander, Sir Horace Smith Dorian, while the success attained was due to the magnificent bearing and indomitable courage displayed by the troops of the 4th and Indian Corps. I consider that the able and skillful dispositions which were made by the general officer commanding the 1st Army contributed largely to the defeat of the enemy and to the capture of his position. The energy and vigor with which General Sir Douglas Haig handled his command show him to be a leader of great ability and power. Another action of considerable importance was brought about by a surprise attack made by the Germans on March 14 against the 27th Division holding the trenches east of St. Eloy. A large force of artillery was concentrated in this area under the cover of a mist and a heavy volume of fire was suddenly brought to bear on the trenches. At 5 o'clock in the afternoon this artillery attack was accompanied by two mine explosions and in the confusion caused by these and by the suddenness of the attack the position of St. Eloia was captured and held for some hours by the enemy, well-directed and vigorous counter-attacks, in which the troops of the 5th Army Corps showed great bravery and determination, restored the situation by the evening of the 15th. The dispatch describes further operations, saying, on February 6 the brilliant action by the troops of the 1st Corps materially improved our position in the area south of La Bossy Canal. During the previous night parties of the Irish Guards and the 3rd Battalion of the Coldstream Guards had succeeded in gaining ground from which a converging fire could be directed on the flanks and rear of certain brick stacks occupied by the Germans, which had been for some time a source of considerable annoyance. At 2 p.m. the affair commenced with a severe bombardment of the brick stacks and the enemy's trenches. A brisk attack by the 3rd Battalion of the Coldstream Guards and Irish Guards from our trenches west of the brick stacks followed and was supported by the fire from the flanking position which had been seized the previous night by the same regiments. The attack succeeded. The brick stacks were occupied without difficulty, 
and a line was established north and south through a point about 40 yards east of the brick stacks. The casualties suffered by the 5th Corps throughout the period under review, and particularly during the month of February, have been heavier than those on other parts of the line. I regret this, but do not think, taking all circumstances into consideration, that they were unduly numerous. The position then occupied by the 5th Corps had always been a very vulnerable part of our line. The ground was marshy, and trenches were most difficult to construct and maintain. The 27th and 28th Divisions of the 5th Corps had no previous experience in European warfare, and a number of the units composing the Corps had only recently returned from service in tropical climates. In consequence, the hardships of a rigorous winter campaign fell with greater weight upon these divisions than upon any other in the command, chiefly owing to these causes the 5th Corps, up to the beginning of March, was constantly engaged in counter-attacks to retake trenches and ground which had been lost in their difficult and arduous task. However, the troops displayed the utmost gallantry and devotion, and it is most creditable to the skill and energy of their leaders that I am able to report how well they have surmounted all their difficulties and that the ground first taken over by them is still intact and held with little greater loss than is incurred by the troops in all other parts of the line. Describing an attack on the German trenches near St. Eloy on February 28th by Princess Patricia's regiment of the Canadian contingent, under command of Lute, C. E. Crabbe, the commander-in-chief says, the services performed by this distinguished corps have continued to be very valuable since I had occasion to refer to them in my last dispatch. They have been most ably organized and trained and were commanded by Lute, Colonel F. D. Farquhar, PSO who I deeply regret to say was killed while superintending some trench work on March 20th. His loss will be deeply felt emphasizing the company operation of the British and French forces and the new role in warfare assumed by the cavalry. The commander-in-chief writes, During the month of February I arranged with General Foch to render the 9th French Corps, holding the trenches to my left, some much-needed rest by sending the three divisions of the British Cavalry Corps to hold a portion of the French trenches, each division for a period of 10 days alternately. It was very gratifying to me to note once again in this campaign the eager readiness which the cavalry displayed to undertake a role which does not properly belong to them in order to support and assist their French comrades. In carrying out this work the leader, officers, and men displayed the same skill and energy which I have had reason to comment upon in former dispatches. Referring to New Chapel and the considerations leading up to this, the field marshal says, About the end of February many vital considerations induced me to believe that a vigorous offensive movement by the troops under my command should be planned and carried out at the earliest possible moment. Among the more important reasons which convinced me of this necessity were the general aspect of the Allied situation throughout Europe, and particularly the marked success of the Russian army in repelling the violent onslaughts of Marshal von Hindenburg, the apparent weakening of the enemy on my front and the necessity for assisting our Russian allies to the utmost by holding as many hostile troops as possible in the Western theater, the efforts to the send which were being made by the French forces at Arras and in Champagne, and perhaps the most weighty consideration of all the need of fostering the offensive spirit in the troops under my command after the trying and possibly enervating experiences which they had gone through of a severe winter in the trenches. In a former dispatch I commented upon the difficulties and drawbacks which the winter weather in this climate imposes upon a vigorous offensive. Early in March these difficulties became greatly lessened by the drying up of the country and by spells of brighter weather. I do not propose in this dispatch to enter at length into the considerations which actuated me in deciding upon the plan, time, 
and place of my attack. As mentioned above, the main attack was carried out by units of the 1st Army, supported by troops of the 2nd Army and the General Reserve. The object of the main attack was to be the capture of the village of Neuchapel and the enemy's position at that point, and the establishment of our line as far forward as possible to the east of that place. The object, nature, and scope of the attack and the instructions for the conduct of the operations were communicated by me to Sir Douglas Haig in a secret memorandum, dated February 19th. After describing the main topographical features of the battlefield and showing how the Germans had established a strong post with numerous machine guns among the big houses, behind walls and in orchards which flanked the approaches to the village, Sir John proceeds, the battle opened at 7.30 o'clock the morning of the 10th of March by a powerful bombardment of the enemy's position in Neuchapel. The artillery bombardment had been well prepared and was most effective, except on the extreme northern portion of the front of attack. At 8.05 o'clock the 23rd and 25th Brigades of the 8th Division assaulted the German trenches on the northwest of the village. At the same hour the Garhol Brigade of the Meerut British India Division, which occupied a position to the south of Neuchapel, assaulted the German trenches in its front. The Garhol Brigade and the 25th Brigade carried the enemy's lines of entrenchment, where the wire entanglements had been almost entirely swept away by our shrapnel fire. The 23rd Brigade, however, on the northeast, was held up by wire entanglements which were not sufficiently cut. At 8.05 o'clock the artillery was turned on New Chapel, and at 8.35 o'clock the advance of the infantry was continued. The 25th and the Garhol brigades pushed on eastward and northeastward, respectively, and succeeded in getting a foothold in the village. The 23rd brigade was still held up in front of the enemy's wire entanglements, and could not progress. Heavy losses were suffered especially in the Middlesex Regiment and the Scottish Rifles. The progress, however, of the 25th Brigade into New Chapel immediately to the south of the 23rd Brigade had the effect of turning the southern flank of the enemy's defenses in front of the 23rd Brigade. This fact, combined with powerful artillery support, enabled the 23rd Brigade to get forward between 10 and 11 a.m. and by 11 o'clock the whole of the village of New Chapel and the roads leading northward and southwestward from the eastern end of that village were in our hands. During this time our artillery completely cut off the village and surrounding country from any German reinforcements which could be thrown into the fight to restore the situation. By means of a curtain of shrapnel fire, prisoners subsequently reported that all attempts at reinforcing the front line were checked. Steps were at once taken to consolidate the positions when considerable delay occurred after the capture of the new chapel position. The infantry was greatly disorganized by the violent nature of the attack and by its passage through the enemy's trenches and the buildings of the village. It was necessary to get the units to some extent together before pushing on. The telephonic communication being cut by the enemy's fire rendered communication between the front and the rear most difficult. The fact of the left of the 23rd Brigade having been held up had kept back the 8th Division and had involved a portion of the 25th Brigade in fighting to the north, out of its proper direction of advance. All this required adjustment. An orchard held by the enemy north of New Chapel also threatened the flank of an advance toward the Obers Bridge. I am of the opinion that this delay would not have occurred had the clearly expressed order of the general officer commanding the 1st Army been carefully observed. The difficulties above enumerated might have been overcome earlier in the day if the general officer commanding the 4th Corps had been able to bring his reserve brigades more speedily into action. As it was, a further advance did not commence before 3.30 o'clock. 
the 21st Brigade was able to form up in the open on the left without a shot being fired at it, thus showing that, at the time, the enemy's resistance had been paralyzed. The brigade pushed forward in the direction of Mulan du Pietra. At first it made good progress, but was subsequently held up by machine gun fire from houses and from a defended work in the line of the German entrenchments opposite the right of the 22nd Brigade. Further to the south the 24th Brigade, which had been directed on Pietra, was similarly held up by machine guns in houses and trenches. At the road junction, 600 yards to the northwest of Pietra, the 25th Brigade, on the right of the 24th, was also held up by machine guns from a bridge held by the Germans over the river Elslaes, which is situated to the northwest of the Bois du Bees, while two brigades of the Meerut Division were establishing themselves on a new line the Duradun Brigade, supported by the Joloter Brigade of the Lahore Division, moved to the attack of the Bois du Bees, but were held up on the line of the river Elslaes by a German post at the bridge, which enfiladed them and brought them to a standstill. The defended bridge over the Elslaes and its neighborhood immediately assumed considerable importance, while the artillery fire was brought to bear, as far as circumstances would permit. On this point, General Sir Douglas Haig directed the 1st Corps to dispatch one or more battalions of the 1st Brigade in support of the troops attacking the bridge. Three battalions were thus sent to a Richerberg Street Vost. Darkness coming on and the enemy having brought up reinforcements, no further progress could be made and the Indian Corps and the 4th Corps proceeded to consolidate the position they had gained, while the operations, which I had thus briefly reported, were going on. The 1st Corps, in accordance with orders, delivered an attack in the morning from Givenchy simultaneously with that against Nuvchapal, but as the enemy's wire was insufficiently cut very little progress could be made, and the troops at this point did little more than hold fast to the Germans in front of them. On the following day, March 11th, the attack was renewed by the 4th and Indian Corps, but it was soon seen that further advance would be impossible until the artillery had dealt effectively with the various houses and defended localities which had held the troops up along the entire front. Efforts were made to direct the artillery fire accordingly, but, owing to the weather conditions, which did not permit of aerial observations, and the fact that nearly all the telephone communications between the artillery observers and their batteries had been cut, it was impossible to do so with sufficient accuracy. When our troops, who were pressing forward, occupied a house there, it was not possible to stop our artillery fire, and the infantry had to be withdrawn, as most of the objects for which the operations had been undertaken had been attained, and as there were reasons why I considered it inadvisable to continue the attack at that time, I directed General Sir Douglas Haig on the night of the 12th to hold and consolidate the ground which had been gained by the 4th and Indian Corps, and suspend further offensive operations for the present. The losses during these three days fighting were, I regret to say, very severe, numbering 190 officers and 2.337 of other ranks killed, 359 officers and 8.174 of other ranks wounded and 23 officers and 1.720 of other ranks missing, but the results attained were, in my opinion, wide and far-reaching, referring to the severity of the casualties in action. The commander-in-chief writes, I can well understand how deeply these casualties are felt by the nation at large, but each daily report shows clearly that they are endured on at least an equal scale by all the combatants engaged throughout Europe, friends and foe alike, in war as it is today between civilized nations armed to the teeth with the present deadly rifle and machine gun. Heavy casualties are absolutely unavoidable. 
for the slightest and due exposure the heaviest toll is exacted. The power of defense conferred by modern weapons is the main cause for the long duration of the battles of the present day, and it is this fact which mainly accounts for such loss and waste of life. Both one and the other can, however, be shortened and lessened if attacks can be supported by a most efficient and powerful force of artillery available, but an almost unlimited supply of ammunition is necessary, and a most liberal discretionary power as to its use must be given to artillery commanders. I am confident that this is the only means by which great results can be obtained with a minimum of loss. Harobiardes of Kandahar, Sidney Lowe, in the London Times, through the long years of peril and of strife, he faced death oft, and death forbore to slay, reserving for its sacrificial day, the garnered treasure of his full crowned life, so saved him till the furrowed soil was rife, with the rich tillage of our noblest dead, then reaped the offering of his honored head in that red field of harvest, where he died, with the embattled legions at his side, the surrender of Pizhemysl how delicious strong fortress yielded to the Russian siege the Austrian fortress of Pizhemysl fell on March 22, 1915, after an investment and siege which lasted, with one short interruption, for nearly four months, this important event was celebrated by a tea doom of thanksgiving in the presence of the Tsar and the general staff. The importance to the Russians of the capitulation of Pizhemysl is suggested by the fact that about 120.000 prisoners were reported taken when the Austrians yielded. Until this was effected the Russians could not venture upon a serious invasion of Hungary, and the investing troops who were then freed were more numerous than the defenders. By the correspondent of the London Times, Petrograd, March 22nd. The Minister of War has informed me that he has just received a telegram from the Grand Duke Nicholas announcing the fall of Pizhemysl. The fall of Pizhemysl marks the most important event of the Russian campaign this year. It finally and irrevocably consolidates the position of the Russians in Galicia. The Austro-German armies are deprived of the incentive hitherto held out to them of relieving the isolated remnant of their former dominion. The besieging army will be freed for other purposes. From information previously published the garrison aggregated about 25.000 men, hence the investing forces, which must always be at least four times as great as the garrison, represent not less than 100.000 men. From all the information lately received from both Russian and neutral sources, the position of the Austro-German armies in the Carpathians has become distinctly critical. The reinforcements for the gallant troops of General Brusilov. General Radko Dmitriev, and other commanders are bound to exercise an enormous influence on the future course of the campaign in the Carpathians. All honor and credit are given by the Russians to the garrison of Pizhemysl and General Kuzmanik. Russian officers ever had the highest opinion of the personality of the commandant. I heard from those who fought under General Radko Dmitriev in the early stages of the Galician campaign that when our troops, after sweeping away the resistance at Olau and Jaroslau, loudly knocked at the doors of the fortress of Pizhemysl. They met with a stern rebuff. In reply to the summons of the Russians to surrender the keys the commandant wrote a curt and dignified note remarking that he considered it beyond his own dignity or the dignity of the Russian general to discuss the surrender of the fortress before it had exhausted all its powers of resistance. During the second invasion of Poland by the Austro-German armies the enemy's line swept up to and just beyond Pizhemysl, interrupting the investment of the fortress. The wave of the Austrian invasion began to subside at the end of the first week in November. Only then could we begin the siege of the mighty fortress, which proved successful after the lapse of four months. The first Russian attempt to storm Pizhemysl without previous bombardment, 
which followed immediately upon the commandant's refusal to surrender, resulted in very great loss of life to no purpose. Thereafter it was decided to abstain from further attempts to take the fortress until our siege guns could be placed and a preliminary bombardment could sufficiently facilitate the task of the besiegers. Meanwhile, although the fortress and town were duly invested, our lines were somewhat remote from the outlying forts, and the peasants of adjacent villages were, it is said, able to pass freely to and from the town of Pajamisla fact which would enable the inhabitants to obtain supplies. From all accounts neither the garrison nor the inhabitants were reduced to very great straits for food. The announcement made at the time of the first investment of the fortress that provisions and supplies would easily last till May was, however, obviously exaggerated. I understand that heavy siege guns were ready to be conveyed to Pajamisla at the end of January, but that the Russian military authorities decided to postpone their departure in view of the determined attempts made by the Austro-German forces to pierce the Russian lines in the Carpathians in order to relieve the fortress, which, if successful, might have endangered the safety of the siege material. Owing to this fact the bombardment of Pajamisla began only about a fortnight ago when the Austro-German offensive had so far weakened as to satisfy the Russian authorities that there was no further danger from this quarter. The concluding stages of the siege have been related in the dispatches from the field headquarters during the past week. The capture of the dominating heights in the eastern sector followed close upon the first bombardment. The final desperate sortie led by General Kuzmanik at the head of the 23rd Division of the Hanv precipitated the end. The remnants of the garrison were enabled to man the works extending to a 30-mile periphery. The loss of the western approaches left General Kuzmanik no alternative but to surrender. He had exhausted his ammunition and used up his effectives. His messages for help were either intercepted or unanswered. The assailants broke down the last resistance. The most important strategical point in the whole of Galicia is now in Russian hands. TDUM at headquarters. Petrograd. March 22nd. The following official communique was issued from the main headquarters this morning, the fortress of Pajamisl has surrendered to our troops. At the headquarters of the commander-in-chief a doom of thanksgiving was celebrated in the presence of the Tsar, the Grand Duke Nicholas, commander-in-chief, and all the staff. The following communique from the great headquarters is issued here today, Northern Front. From the Neiman to the Vistula and on the left bank of the latter river there has been no important change. Our troops advancing from Torogan captured, after a struggle, Lagsurgeon, near the frontier of East Prussia, where they took prisoners and seized an ammunition depot and engineers stores, the Carpathians. There has been furious fighting on the roads to Bartfeld in Hungary in the valleys of the Andua and Labors, near the Lubkawa Pass and on the left bank of the Upper San our troops have advanced successfully, forcing the way with rifle fire and with the bayonet. In the course of the day we took 2.500 prisoners, including 50 officers and 4 machine guns, in the direction of Munkash the Germans, in close formation, attacked our positions at Rosokach, Orfchik, and Kosiawa, but were everywhere driven back by our fire and by our counter-attacks with severe losses. In Galicia there has been a snowstorm, Pajamisl. On the night of the 21st there was a fierce artillery fire round Pajamisl. Portions of the garrison who once more tried to effect a sortie toward the northeast toward Oikluk were driven back within the circle of forts with heavy losses. Note. This portion of the communique was evidently drafted before the fall of Pajamisl took place. And the communique proceeds, in recognition of the joyous event of the fall of Pajamisl the Tsar has conferred upon the Grand Duke Nicholas II class of the Order of St. George and the third class of the same order on General Ivanov. 
the commander of the besieging army. Illustration, map of the siege of Kajamisl. The small triangles indicate outlying fortified hills with their height and feet. Collecting the arms. By Hamilton Fife. Correspondent of the London Daily Mail. Petrograd. March 23rd. Advanced detachments of Russian troops entered Kajamisl last night. The business of collecting the arms is proceeding. I believe the officers will be allowed to keep their swords. Great surprise has been caused here by a statement that the number of troops captured exceeds three army corps. Possibly on account of the snowstorm no further telegram has been received from the Grand Duke Nicholas. And no details of the fall of the garrison have yet been officially announced. I have, however, received the definite assurance of a very high authority that the force which has surrendered includes nine generals, over 2.000 officers, and 130.000 men. In spite of the authority of my informant, I am still inclined to await confirmation of these figures. The leading military organ, the Ruski Invalid, says that the garrison was known to number 60.000 men and that it had been swelled to some extent by the additional forces drafted in before the investment began. The wretch estimates the total at 80.000, and a semi-official announcement also places the strength of the garrison at that figure excluding artillery and also the men belonging to the auxiliary and technical services. There is an equal difference of opinion regarding the number of guns taken. The estimates vary from 1.000 to 2.000. What is known for certain is that the fortress contains 600 big guns of the newest type and a number of small, older pieces. The characteristic spirit in which Russia is waging war is shown by the service of thanksgiving to God which was held immediately the news of the fall of the fortress reached the Grand Duke's headquarters. The Tsar was there to join with the staff in offering humble gratitude to the Almighty for the great victory accorded to the Russian arms. The first crowds which gathered here yesterday to rejoice over the great news moved with one consent to the Kazan Cathedral, where they sang the national hymn and crossed themselves reverently before the Holy wonder-working picture of Kazan, the mother of God, in spite of the heaviest snowstorm of the winter, which made the streets impassable and stopped the tramway cars. The Nevsky Prospect rang all the afternoon and evening with the sound of voices raised in patriotic song. Kajamisla is admitted to be the first spectacular success of the war on the side of the Allies. It is not surprising that the nation is proud and delighted. Yet so generous is the Russian mind that there mingle with its triumph admiration and sympathy for the garrison which was compelled to surrender after a long, brave resistance. Popular imagination has been thrilled by the story of the last desperate sortie, which will take a high place in the history of modern war, when toward the end of the week the hope of relief, which had so long buoyed up the defenders, was with heavy, resolved hearts abandoned. General Kuzmanik resolved to try to save at all events some portion of his best troops by sending them to fight a way out, from the ranks, thin terribly by casualties and also by typhus and other diseases caused through hunger and the unhealthy state of the town. He selected 20.000 men and served out to them five days reduced rations, which were all he had left. He also supplied them with new boots in order to give them as good a chance as possible to join their comrades in the Carpathians whose summits could be seen from Pajamisl in the shining, warm spring sunshine. It was a hopeless enterprise, pitifully futile. It is true that the Austrian army sent to relieve the city were only a few days' march distant, but even if the 20.000 had cut away through the investing force they would have found another Russian army between them and their fellow countrymen, General Kuzmanik, before they started, addressed them. In a rousing speech he said, Soldiers, 
for nearly half a year, in spite of cold and hunger, you have defended the fortress entrusted to you. The eyes of the world are fixed on you. Millions at home are waiting with painful eagerness to hear the news of your success. The honor of the army and our fatherland requires us to make a superhuman effort. Around us lies the iron ring of the enemy. Burst away through it and join your comrades who have been fighting so bravely for you and are now so near. I have given you the last of our supplies of food. I charge you to go forward and sweep the foe aside. After our many gallant and glorious fights we must not fall into the hands of the Russians like sheep, we must and will break through. In case this appeal to the men's fighting spirit were ineffective threats were also used to the troops, who were warned by their officers that any who returned to the fortress would be treated as cowards and traitors. After the general speech the men were told to arrest for a few hours, at four in the morning they paraded and at five the battle began. For nine hours the Austrians hurled themselves against the iron ring until early in the afternoon, when, broken and battered, the remains of the 20,000 began to straggle back to the town. Exhausted and disheartened, the garrison was incapable of further effort. In order to prevent useless slaughter General Kuzmanek sent officers with a flag of truce to inquire about the terms of surrender. These were arranged very quickly, in spite of the local value of the victory, and the vastness of the captures of material as well as of men. It must not be thought, as,